Well, we have a delight tonight, and that is the chance to do some really um, good work in the book of Numbers, uh, just some spectacular texts. And so I want to have you turn with me to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. While you're finding that, when we went through Numbers 10, 11, and 12, we talked about spiritual maturity through discipline. We laid a foundation, a theological foundation that had six parts to it, that discipline happens to 100% of Christians. We saw that. God will finish the process of Christ-likeness. Any trial should result in self-examination. We saw that we're called to endure with hope and humility. We saw that discipline may be associated with your relationships. We saw that genuine confession of sin may end discipline. And then we saw in the story of the worries and the fears of the Israelites, three lessons that discipline can teach you. Lesson one was stop complaining. Instead, you place your trust in the Lord and see by faith his good work in your life. Not only do you stop complaining, but you stop craving that instead of seeing what you have as a curse and what you wish for as a blessing, see what you have as a way to be thankful and be thankful for what you have. Stop complaining, stop craving. And then we said also, we saw the lesson of stop contending. Stop challenging authority. God is displeased with contentiousness and rebellion against his appointed authorities in the nations, in the church, in the workplace, in the home. And we also saw that Jesus Christ on earth was the perfect example of living out each of these lessons. And so as we're focusing each message in the book of Numbers on the theme of spiritual maturity, chapters 10, 11, and 12 gave us some tremendous insights on spiritual maturity through discipline. Tonight, I'd like to talk about spiritual maturity through more discipline. The great thing about working our way straight through a book is that when God wants to emphasize something, wants to repeat himself, he simply does so. And so we get the weight and the accent behind it that he desires us to have. But our text tonight, beginning in Numbers 15, really allows us an opportunity to take a little bit of a different approach to the discipline of the Lord and to think more about the disciplines of the Lord, plural, some disciplines, some habits, some routines which characterize the faithful, mature follower of God. Now, we have a great advantage for us as believers of the new covenant in Christ. We have the full revelation of the New Testament. We understand that as those who have repented of their sins, those who have humbled ourselves as those worthless, as Romans 3 calls the unrepentant sinner, and we've received the free gift of salvation in Christ, our call to obey the law of Christ is out of love for Christ. And we we do this out of love because our salvation from sin has been secured. It's already a done deal. It is a, a finished product. And as those eager to follow the Lord in all of his ways, to be obedient to him, to demonstrate our love by obeying him, we grow into greater spiritual maturity by developing these disciplines, these habits, these routines, which these chapters and numbers are going to outline for us. And so... Very simply, I want to give you five disciplines, five habits, five routines, which God wanted Israel to grasp and understand, disciplines which the people of God in the new covenant in which we live today can grasp and should grasp as well. So I want to start with, we'll call this the first one, the discipline of sacrificial worship. The discipline of sacrificial worship. 
we get our bearings again just to note that Israel has been just sentenced by God to wander in the wilderness for what will amount to be about 38 more years. The entire first generation will die in the desert. The next generation will be the ones to enter the promised land of Canaan. And so we begin in chapter 15, verse 1. Follow along with me. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or at your appointed feasts to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then the next verses 4 through 10 really tell us about three specific offerings, a burnt offering, a free will offering, and a peace offering. And there's some new information here. Grain and wine are to be included here as well. And then in verses 11 through 16, the Lord emphasizes that anyone, even foreigners, even non-Israelites, may worship God if they've come to saving faith in the one true God. I mean, after all, the purpose of Israel, as given in Exodus 19.6, is to be a kingdom of priests, those who point the way to the one true living God. And then he gives some further instructions. Verse 17 of chapter 15, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so you shall present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Now, there's some important features we're kind of meant to see here, and I want to give you three of them. First of all, there's the feature of hope. You notice in verse 2, the feature of hope, when you come to the land. Verse 18, when you come to the land. He's speaking primarily, of course, to the second generation who's going to survive the wilderness wandering. They'll be waiting 38 years, but twice God promises them, when you come to the land. This is meant to give them great hope that their time of waiting will, in fact, come to an end. There's a second feature we're meant to see. We'll call this one the feature of gratitude. Of gratitude. The three sacrifices dealt with in verses 1 through 16 are voluntary and spontaneous sacrifices. They're given to God in gratitude and praise. In other words, God is speaking to those who have a true and genuine heart of faith, an internal reality, worshipers who love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength. And so this is, this is a, a way for them to demonstrate that gratitude. And third, I want to point out the feature of fellowship. Of fellowship. This is partly a new instruction in that along with the animal sacrifices to be offered bread and wine. Now, what does that sound like? Well, it sounds like a meal, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's a time of fellowship with the Lord. It's the sharing of a meal, as it were. These burnt offerings were to be accompanied by the grain, the bread, the wine. These are ostensibly burnt also. And what's the result? Verse 10 says that it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This doesn't mean it smells good. What it means is that God has accepted and received this sacrifice. And listen, when you're dealing with the transcendent, all-powerful, wrathful God of the universe, it's a big deal to have your sacrifice accepted and received. That means that you have fellowship. 
Your fellowship is maintained. It's confirming that God bears no anger towards you, bears no wrath towards you. His wrath has been satisfied for a time. And fellowship is secured. Now, obviously, we have the, the advantage of being New Testament Christians, and, and the symbolism here is just jumping out at us. These sacrifices are merely a shadow of the one perfectly effective sacrifice to come. The animal sacrifices didn't save anyone. All are saved by faith in every age. But the animal sacrifices provided the blood necessary to maintain fellowship with God until the sacrifice of Christ could be applied, we might say retroactively, to all the faithful of the Old Testament. And of course, as a New Testament believer in Christ, you're immediately struck with the symbolism of this meal of sorts. You see the body and blood of the sacrifice. You see the bread and the wine, the cup to accompany the sacrifice. Of course, we see the shadows of the Lord's table that we eat the bread and drink the cup to remember the Lord's death, the Lord's sacrifice, his sacrifice to pay for our sins so that we have hope, we have gratitude, and we have perpetual fellowship with the Lord. So these features of hope, of gratitude, of fellowship, they were accomplished through sacrifice and this was not free. It wasn't free. Faith in the Lord is costly. It's not certainly that you earn your salvation through works, but to worship God is sacrificial by its very nature. What does it cost you to worship? Now, I'm not even talking about giving. We'll get to that in a few minutes. What does it cost you to worship? Well, I can give you four things that it costs you. It costs you time. It costs you time every Sunday morning when I'm driving to the church. One of the things that saddens my heart more than anything is to see all the runners and all the cyclists and all the families out walking on the Lord's day. Because they could be worshiping the one true living God. They could be honoring Christ. And yet they have chosen to take time for themselves instead of to give it to the Lord. Worship costs you in terms of commitment. Commitment. What do you have to do to make the Lord's day the overriding calendar item in your life? That may be as serious as changing jobs. It may be as serious as changing cities. And it certainly is as serious as determining not to treat the Lord's Day like it's just a second Saturday. It's not. It costs you in terms of humility. In terms of humility, if you're going to worship properly, that means coming with confessed sin, both to the Lord and to others. That we humble ourselves to come to worship we don't come with arrogance we don't come with a haughty spirit it costs you time commitment humility and one last thing it costs you is priority the fact is is that because you spend time in worship you cannot do everything else you want to do in life you simply can't especially now that there's so many other things scheduled on sundays and so it costs you priority, costs you in humility, costs you in commitment, costs you in time. Let me put it this way. Trying to squeeze worship into your life is trying to squeeze a marriage into your life. It requires a completely different lifestyle, a whole different way of thinking about your life. Listen, Israel punctuated their year, their month, and their week with worship. Everything was centered on worship, and we ought to do the same. That pattern hasn't changed. The very last book of the Bible, the great and holy book of the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to John, Revelation 1.10, when on the Lord's day, it was on Sunday, 
When Jesus Christ himself appeared to John to give him these words, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest, around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Jesus Christ chose Sunday, the Lord's day, to give the final revelation of our Bible. He chose the day set aside to remember and to celebrate his resurrection And just as a reminder, that is the same Jesus that we worship every Lord's Day, clothed in the long robe with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head white like white wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, and his voice like the roar of many waters. He is the same. That is him right now at this moment on the Lord's Day. I think one of the saddest testimonies of a less than fruitful Christian life is a life in which the believer never really quite made worship the primary marker of his life. Never could quite be faithful to gather with God's people, always kind of on the fringe, never quite starting up worshiping in his home with his family, never being consistent in his fellowship with the church. That's a sad testimony. That's a waste. Conversely, the greatest testimony you can leave behind you is that you were a worshiper, that you lived your life around the sacrifice of worship, that you were disciplined to worship God. Let me tell you a simple way to make this happen. Three simple steps. Step one, erase your calendar completely. I think that's obvious. We know how to do that. Step two, Mark off the Lord's day as set aside for worship and worship-related activities and pray for wisdom in how to do this. And step three, put everything else in. That's simple. Erase your calendar. Make the Lord's day your priority. Put everything else in and see what the Lord does. No, we don't have a Sabbath law anymore primarily because the Sabbath, Saturday, was the symbol of God's covenant with Israel. Our symbol of the new covenant is the Lord's table, communion, But the early church gathered on Sunday to worship. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 is clear about this. By the way, the earliest Jewish Christians didn't just abandon the Sabbath altogether. Saturday, they worshiped God on Saturday, and they specifically gathered with the redeemed church on Sundays. And over time, Sabbath worship decreased, and the Lord's Day, really Sunday worship, increased. Just a little historical note here. It was the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century who instituted that all places of business should close on Sundays so that believers could worship Christ. That's where what you call the blue laws sometimes came from. Because he claimed faith in Christ and he said, no, we're not going to do business that day. We will worship Christ. The discipline of sacrificial worship. We can also look at the discipline of spiritual alertness. The discipline of spiritual alertness. I want to show you two types of spiritual alertness. First of all, alertness to your spiritual blind spots. Alertness to your spiritual blind spots. Chapter 15, verse 22. 
But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, we'll stop right there for a moment. If you sin, this is plural, the nation as a whole, all the people, if in their immaturity they go in a direction they ought not to go as a nation, primarily out of ignorance, then verses 23 through 29 says that the sacrifice shall be made for the nation, the priest shall make atonement. Verse 25 says, because it was a mistake. It's a word that means it was inadvertent. It was done in ignorance or a lack of knowledge. And just as a little reminder here, when Moses is preaching this, there are no written copies of the extensive law of God yet. Moses couldn't say, go home and read your Bibles because nobody had one. In fact, it would be centuries before copies were available. And even then, those copies were limited. And so the whole nation could be swayed through ignorance. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Lord is aware that we do have spiritual blind spots. We have areas we can't see. Areas of conduct in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, which we're unaware that are offensive to the Lord. And so, in His grace, forgiveness is freely given. But did you notice something? Forgiveness is still required. It's still necessary. God doesn't just overlook sin. He never overlooks sin just because even it's unintentional. And so we're to have alertness to your spiritual blind spots. There's a second type of spiritual alertness. Alertness to your holy calling. Alertness to your holy calling. And God instituted just this amazing idea to give Israel a memory trigger. He gave them a memory trigger for faithful Israelites to have around and literally on them to keep them from spiritual blind spots and alertness to their holy calling. Skip ahead with me to chapter 15, verse 37. Follow along with me. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. A cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you were inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So these tassels, and you've seen pictures of them probably, they were there to be reminded of holiness. It wasn't just external moralism, but to be reminded that my life is rooted in obedience to the Lord. Verse 40 says, do all my commands. Now these little tassels of blue, these cords of blue, are very interesting because the, the dye used for these was, it was considered a color of royalty, which is fitting because Israel is a kingdom of priests. But the only other place that we see this, this violet cord with this special dye is on the high priest's clothing and on the gold plate, around the gold plate, on the high priest's turban. And what did that say? It was a plate that said, Holy to the Lord. This is not something you saw everywhere. You didn't have a violet or a blue tassel hanging from your tent. You didn't hang one from your camel. You didn't put one on your goats. It was on the high priest and on you. And that's it. The sight of these blue tassels We're meant to elevate your thinking to stop your sinful thoughts, stop your sinful actions, stop your sinful words right in their tracks to remind you to do the right thing. In fact, the dye used to make this was expensive. 
It was very expensive. It was extracted, and I know you came here to learn this tonight. It was extracted from the gland of a particular snail that you had to go to the northern coast of Israel to find, and it took 12,000 snails to make 1.4 grams of dye. And so it was highly concentrated. It was the color of royalty, and it reminded you that you were part of a kingdom of priests, that you were to be holy. This is not a bad idea, is it? To have something in front of you all the time that says, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing. Do you have something in front of you at all times that says, do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing? We don't need a blue tassel because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us of our calling to holiness. But it's not a bad idea. Now, we have to be careful It's a tangible reminder to be holy, to obey the Lord. But of course, the symbol very quickly becomes a show of self-righteousness if you're not careful. Now, for example, we know from Luke 9, verse 20, that Jesus wore these tassels. He was a law keeper. And so he wore the tassels. And ironically, Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees because they made their tassels extra long so that they could appear holy. And yet he says they're frauds, they're fakes. Instead of looking at the tassels to be reminded to be holy, they use the tassels as an external show of false piety. And so Jesus was separating those with genuine faith from those with false faith. In fact, we see right here, sandwiched between the sacrifice for unintentional sins and the command concerning the tassels, we see what the false faith, what the false believer looks like. Back in the unintentional sin text, God has made a clear distinction between the faithful who has sinned out of immaturity, out of ignorance, out as a mistake, and he distinguishes between them and the willfully rebellious. For the willfully rebellious, there is no sacrifice. Why is there no sacrifice for the willfully rebellious? Because very simply, how can God forgive when forgiveness isn't sought after? Or Jesus put it this way, only the sick need a physician, right? Chapter 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. In other words, the one who sins against the Lord and still pushes back, who is high-handed, which is a word that means self-exalting, it's he's to be excluded from the people cut off from the people this is very likely a death sentence carried out by god himself this is somebody who says reviles the lord it's a word that means blasphemes the lord offends the lord because he pushes back in fact we see an example of what we might call a non-unintentional sin verse 32 While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now you might say, 
all he's doing is gathering firewood. Well, can we keep a couple things in mind? First of all, they're in the desert. The climate is warm and they don't need to cook because they have manna provided for them. They would have received a double portion on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, and here on Saturday, he goes out to gather firewood. In other words, he knew exactly what he was doing. He actually goes out of his way to violate the Sabbath. He had a blatant disregard for God's holy standards and is simply going to do what he wants. It's a false believer. The discipline of spiritual alertness is so important. It's an important theme for the Christian Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 31, to be alert and to remember the preaching of Paul. Why be alert? He said, because false teachers are coming. We're looking at this in 1 Timothy in the mornings. Paul told the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, 18, to keep alert in prayer. That that's part of what prayer is. It's an alertness. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. Paul told the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. What does it mean to be alert spiritually? What, what is that speaking of? It means knowing and obeying the commands of the Lord. It means never playing with sin. What does that mean? It means coming as close as you can without sinning. It means pushing the boundaries. It means doing all you can to get away with something instead of trying to stay in the center of God's will. It means thinking holiness and never, ever, ever thinking that you know all your blind spots. You don't. Trust me, you don't. And when you do learn of one, then you guard it and you watch it and you dominate it by God's help. That's spiritual alertness. Let me give you two simple ways to be spiritually alert, to keep looking for chinks in your spiritual armor. Very simple. The first one is Proverbs. Proverbs. I would encourage you to read the book of Proverbs, beginning particularly in chapter 10. Chapters 1 through 9 is basically an introduction but particularly chapters 10 through 31, and simply note every piece of wisdom that makes you wince. And Proverbs is gloriously repetitive. If you take a highlighter and maybe make a physical copy and you highlight every verse that makes you wince, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go back and see that there's a theme because Proverbs repeats itself over and over again. And the second way to look for chinks in your armor is prayer prayer i know this is difficult but ask the lord to reveal to you where you need to be more alert ask the lord to reveal this to you and he probably won't give you a bolt of lightning or some sort of supernatural thing probably he'll have three people tell you the same thing in the span of a week ah thank you lord for that answer to prayer for these three people who just destroyed my self-esteem thank you for that but you have to keep looking for chinks in your spiritual armor if you think you're done doing that you're not The discipline of sacrificial worship, the discipline of spiritual alertness. There's another discipline the Lord would have us learn in this text. We'll call this the discipline of submissive contentment. The discipline of submissive contentment. And now we come to one of the most famous incidents in all the Pentateuch, and that is Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion. Chapter 16, verse 1. 
Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So you have Korah, who is a Levite. You have Dathan and Abiram from the tribe of Reuben leading this rebellion, leading 250 leaders from the other tribes as well. And basically, they're saying we're just as qualified as Moses to lead. The basic question here is, does Moses have a monopoly on holiness? Does Moses have a monopoly on appearing before God? Now, how did the rebellion get started? Well, like any rebellion does, it started by whispering among neighbors. Dathan and Abiram are from the tribe of Reuben, which camps next to the tribe of Levi. Numbers chapter 3. And so, from tent to tent, the whispering began. Whether they mean that Moses has gone too far, well, likely they're talking about God's judgment that the entire first generation isn't going to see the promised land. They blame Moses with, for this. But what really hurts is the fact that familiarity breeds contempt. Moses' father, Amram, and Korah's father, Izhar, are brothers. Moses and Korah are first cousins. And so Moses fell on his face at this horrible rebellion and instead of defending himself, he'll ask God to judge between them. Chapter 16, verse 5. And he said to Korah and all his company in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers. Censers were just kind of little trays that held fire and incense. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And so the very same rebuke that they gave to Moses, he gives right back and says, you have gone too far. So what's the challenge? Okay, he says, all of you will burn incense before the Lord. The burning of incense was uniquely a priestly function. All will burn incense before the Lord. And we remember what happens to anyone who burns unauthorized fire, strange fire. Luke 10, 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, they become the fire. And so Moses is issuing basically a life or death challenge. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, what are they seeking? They're seeking earthly power. They want to rule in a higher capacity. The 250 we'll see are seeking priestly functions, spiritual power. So the three top men are seeking earthly power. The 250 are, speaking, are seeking spiritual power. Rather than God's will to have only the Levites serve these priestly functions, keep this in mind, Korah, Dathan, Abiram seeking earthly power. The 250 speaking, seeking spiritual power. Keep that off to the side for a moment. And it appears that they're grumbling against Moses, but how does God take it? Verse 11 says that it is the Lord against whom they've turned. A little bit later, Moses sends for Dathan and Abiram. He says, come to me. And they refuse to come. Verse 12. 
They've lost all respect. They've lost all submission. And listen to their lies. They sent word back to Moses. Chapter 16, verse 13. This is the word that they sent back. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. They're lying. Several lies here. They're saying they came from a land flowing with milk and honey. Anybody recall what they did for a living there? They were slaves. They're saying that Moses appointed himself on some sort of power trip. That's a lie. They're saying that Moses is going to kill them in the wilderness and that maybe Moses is going to punish them by putting out their eyes and all who rebelled. And so they accuse him of, of abusing his power. Now, in the meantime, Moses told Korah to get all who were on his side and come before the Lord with censers to burn incense before the Lord Chapter 16, verse 18. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Did you catch this? It's not just the 250. Now all of Israel is following Korah. And once again, God says he's about to consume the whole nation. And once again, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and intercede for Israel, and God relents. Instead, verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling, the tent of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And so Moses, since Dathan and Abiram wouldn't come to him, he goes to them. With the elders of Israel following, he tells all the people, get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. By the way, if he goes to the tent of Dathan and Abiram and they're also getting away from the tent of Korah, what does that mean? That means they were all next door to each other. It was a little conspiracy. They're camped together. Verse 27. So they, that is the people, got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, into the grave, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. As soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. God judges not only the three men, the sin of these men had also dire consequences for their family. And we should note, by the way, that the deaths of the wives and children and the servants here, whatever they had, 
This isn't a punishment on the whole family. This is not a punishment on the family because of the sin of these men. It is the natural consequences of the sin of these men. And certainly we would believe that in eternity, God is going to show those family members mercy. And we believe that. But what it does is it stopped cold. It stopped dead in its tracks the lines of these men. There are no more descendants of Korah. There are no more descendants of Dathan. There are no more descendants of Abiram. They're done. Their earthly legacy is finished. By the way, all of the major swallowing incidents in Scripture are in the context of God's consuming judgment. It's a great metaphor for consuming judgment, isn't it? Aaron's staff swallowing the staff of his Egyptian competitors in Exodus 7. The Red Sea swallowing the Egyptian army. Jonah being swallowed by the great fish. And by the way, death is said in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, to be swallowed up by the victory of Christ. And now, the dust is settling as the shrieks of the dying fade away. The heavy earth has turned over on top of them, and now all of Israel is afraid, and they begin to run. But remember, we still have 250 men at the tent of meeting offering incense And remember what happens to those who offer unauthorized fire. Chapter 16, verse 35. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Now the true priests of God are instructed to go into the smoldering remains of these 250 men at God's instruction. They get the censers and they hammer them into plates because now they've been They have become holy to the Lord because they've been purified by the Lord's fire. And these plates are hammered and turned into a cover for the altar, the altar of genuine and true sacrifice. Why is this? Verse 40, to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. Remember what Korah, Dathan, and Abiram wanted? They wanted earthly power, and they were swallowed by the earth. And remember what the 250 wanted? They wanted spiritual power, and they're offered as a sacrifice to heaven. God graded their hearts, and they got an F. And in this case, F is for fire. Now, someone might ask, well, how does this mesh with the whole idea that God is love? First of all, I don't need to make that mesh. God is God. God is love, and those who claim to love him in return had betrayed him in what we might call covenant treachery. And I want to make sure we understand this. God's retributive justice, his wrath, is part of his love. What do we mean by that? You can't love the faithful without giving justice to the unfaithful to provide a safe space for the faithful. God loves the faithful by promising to ultimately remove the unfaithful from their midst. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're hoping for. For example, speaking of New Jerusalem in the final kingdom someday, we see the unrighteous separated for all eternity from those who have trusted Christ. Revelation 21, 27 says of New Jerusalem, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The judgment of the wicked is a part of God's love for those that he saved. 
Part of God's love will be expressed in the fact that there will be a day where never again do you have to deal with a rebel against God. Never again. By the way, did you notice the tremendous power of murmuring and grumbling against leadership? It turned most of the people's hearts. But after this incident, I think we would expect them to learn their lesson. Not yet. Verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. I just wonder how exactly did Moses and Aaron make the earth swallow people? And how did they make fire come out from the tent of meeting? Verse 42, and when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Here we go again for the third time. God is about to consume all of Israel and again, Moses intercedes for them. From a purely human standpoint, talk about pushing your luck with Moses because all Moses has to do is say, all right, I'm done, go for it. Just give me a minute to get away. But he doesn't. In fact, Moses has to act fast. He tells Aaron to quickly get fire from the altar and lay incense on it and start going through the congregation. In verse 47, so Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put incense, put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. In other words, the moment God said, get away from these people, people started dropping dead like flies. Verse 49, now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. We're probably talking about a span of a few minutes when people began dropping dead. But there is still now the matter of Aaron's spiritual leadership. And I think God has gotten their attention now. And so this test for the people is quite a bit friendlier. Chapter 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you, that is before the ark, And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. So we have here the Bible's very first, wait for it, staff meeting. Very friendly, very non-threatening. And look what happens. Verse 8, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony and behold, the staff of Aaron For the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Okay, now God has his people's attention. Verse 12, and the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish, we are undone. We're all undone. Everyone who comes near, who who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? You know what would have kept 
everyone from this problem the discipline of submissive contentment. They could have used a lesson from the Apostle Paul when he told the Philippian church in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what, content. And certainly in the church of Jesus Christ, discontent is contagious. It seems to go hand in hand with things like gossip and selfishness, a high view of self. What was the difference between Korah and Moses? Very simply, God chose Moses for leadership and he did not choose Korah. I mean, who knows? From a human standpoint, maybe Korah was a great leader. He did, after all, get an entire nation to follow him. But how had God made Moses? Do you remember? Numbers 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That's the type of leadership God wanted his people to submit to. It is to your spiritual advantage to practice the discipline of spiritual and submissive contentment. It is just simply the way to peace, to be happy where you are. The discipline of sacrificial worship, the discipline of spiritual alertness, the discipline of submissive contentment. Now we can see the discipline of systematic giving. The discipline of systematic giving. The people are terrified at this point to come near to the tent of meeting. They're they're scared. Chapter 18 begins with instructions to the Levites in general, to the Levitical priests in particular, re-instructing them to guard the sanctuary such that the people could approach appropriately and without fear. This is good news. There is still a sacrifice for sins. There's still a sacrifice. They can still be cleansed before their God who loves them and desires to bless them as a nation. In fact, verse 23 has this Interesting verse in chapter 18, but the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity. That has been a kind of a theological problem for a time. This is very simple, actually. What it means is that the Levites are still able to manage the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and Israel may rest assured that God's wrath against sin is satisfied. The Levites will do their job so that The iniquity of the people will be borne away by sacrifice. The people may enjoy fellowship. They may enjoy communion. But what do you do with these men who are spending their lives in service to the Lord? God gets to the matter of remuneration, of support for these men. Chapter 18, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. Now I want you to notice the giving to these men, to their support, is not a gift. It's something that's owed to them. They already own it. Verses 9 through 20 describes the various animal sacrifices which the Levites could eat. And in verse 20, we see, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. That, incidentally, is one verse used by some denominations to uh, institute the practice of a parsonage, of telling their pastor, We have a house you can live in, but you can't own one. And they go back to Leviticus 9.20, or 18.20. I would argue about different covenants, but that's just me. 
But why is it that they weren't to own land? You shall have no inheritance in their land. That almost sounds like a punishment, doesn't it? Like they're being, like they're being treated like a second-class citizen. No, this is not a punishment. It's just the opposite. It's not that they're not getting land because they're not allowed to. It's that they're not getting land because they shouldn't have to. Because land implied having to make their own living because that's what land was for. It was to make your money. And instead, they were to receive from the land of the other tribes. Beginning in verse 21, we see now the tithe, the tenth given the rest of Israel, the 10% offering given twice a year and a third time every third year. And it was all to go to support the Levites, to support what was essentially a theocratic government. Verse 24 For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. The tithe was really a lot closer to a tax than to a religious offering of any kind. And in verse 24, God says he's given this to the Levites already. Did you catch that? It belongs to them before it's ever been given. And from this tithe, the Levites themselves are to give a contribution as well, beginning in verse 25. The principles are the same. Today, Paul gives the same principles to the New Testament church. Yes, there's a difference in covenant. We don't tithe anymore. That's an Old Testament law. We're to give as generously as we're able. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, but the, the principles are very similar. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul commands in 1 Timothy 6.18 that those with particular wealth are to bear a much greater responsibility to be generous beyond what others are able to do. Earlier in 1 Timothy 5, he commands that the elders who work hard at preaching and teaching are to receive double honor. It's a word that simply means money. There's to be liberality and generosity in that regard. And these offerings are not to be regarded as some sort of leverage over the leadership or a ticket to get a little more attention than others get. In fact, verse 21 here says that to the Levites I have given every tithe. The offering belonged to the Lord before it was ever given and it belonged to those that you're supporting before it was ever given. No, instead, the discipline of systematic giving, of giving in a planned and an intentional fashion, it's really meant to have some marvelous spiritual benefits for you. I'll just give you a couple of benefits. First of all, it places value on the spiritual nourishment that you receive. It, it puts value on spiritual nourishment. It's very interesting to me that someone who would never, who never gives would never think of going into the grocery store and just trying to walk out with two bags of groceries without paying for them. Why? Because they know the value of the nourishment they're taking out the door, so they put out some money for it. Giving places a value on what you receive. Proverbs 23, verse 23 says, buy truth. It means purchase it. Spend money on it. A second spiritual benefit to you is that giving funds the spread of the gospel. And this goes all the way back to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, his ministry was funded by generous givers who made certain that his needs were cared for. The Apostle Paul's ministry was made possible by the generosity of especially the church at Philippi and and even some wealthy believers, including some businesswomen, by the way. 
Another marvelous benefit, it gives you kinship with Old Testament saints. It gives you kinship with Old Testament saints. I think one of the shames that we have in the church of Jesus Christ is we have so little kinship, so little identification with the saints of the Old Testament. It's as if that one blank page between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New says, you have nothing to do with those people again for all eternity. You're nothing like them. You're totally different. We're way more like them than we are different from them. It gives you kinship. In, In a sense, you get the same opportunity to worship with sacrifice as the Old Testament saints had with their sacrificial animals. And so it places value on spiritual nourishment you receive. It funds the spread of the gospel and it gives you kinship with Old Testament saints. I've got to tell you, it is incredibly harmful to your soul to ever fall for the lie that worship is free. Very harmful to your soul. An overemphasis on freedom in Christ has produced the wrong notion that worship should not cost you anything. That not being under the law of the tithe means that financial support is somehow optional. It's damaging to your soul. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it could cost you your life if you dared to worship God without sacrifice. So we have the discipline of sacrificial worship, the discipline of spiritual alertness, the discipline of submissive contentment, the discipline of systematic giving. We'll do one more. The discipline of sustained fellowship. The discipline of sustained fellowship. Now in chapter 19, God gives Moses some specific laws concerning purification. Verses 1 through 9, we see a description that a red heifer is to be sacrificed and burned. And then the ashes of that sacrifice are to be placed outside the camp in a place that can be, they can be mixed with water. This is to be available for ritual purification. And so now chapter 19, verse 11 Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. This is going to become very important because in the next 38 years, millions of people are going to be dropping dead in Israel. But by God's grace, he allows them a way to purify themselves with this ash water that they mix up. Now, just a little review here. This is important. Just the process of living made you unclean before the Lord. Just being on earth. Not in the sense of sin so much as more of the sense of the lack of preparedness to sacrifice and worship. Normal life, things like skin problems, emissions from the body, injuries, illness, And here, the necessity of dealing with the dead, all of these things rendered you unready to meet with God. You were unready. You recall that it's sacrifice which sets you apart now as holy and able to worship, but it was being clean which enabled you to sacrifice. And so there's basically a two-step process. You You must become clean before you may become holy and able to worship. This is a reminder that we're sinners living in a sinful world and this process of being cleansed was not to be taken lightly because to take it lightly meant you were taking the holiness of the Lord lightly. In fact, verse 13 of chapter 19, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness 
is still on him. Verse 14, this is the law. When someone dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And verse 20, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him. He is unclean. How serious does God take his own holiness? Extremely seriously. You just forget to have this ash water thrown on you and you are cut off from your people. And once again, we see this shadow of the true reality of salvation, which involves being made clean, being renewed in holiness. Titus 3, 5 reminds us that Christ saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the what? The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit resulting in justification. That we become heirs of eternal life. I I think this is important because this picture helps us understand the initial washing which saves us. The salvation from God which saves us. But what about the fact that we're still sinners living in a sinful world? What do we do with that? Our salvation is never in jeopardy. We're new creations in Christ, but our fellowship, our communion with God is in jeopardy. Our relationship with him, our community relationship is in jeopardy if we're flippant about sin and about all the disgusting things that we come in contact with in the course of life. Let me get this down right to where we live. Men, you may not be looking for pornographic images, but they're everywhere in life. Ladies, you may not be looking for men who are seemingly more understandable and understanding and emotionally available than your husband, but they're everywhere in life. Any of you may not be trying to be greedy, but the allure of wealth and false happiness is what drives the advertising industry, and it's everywhere in real life. You might not be trying to be rude or insensitive, but the careless remarks made to those you love may still be lingering. You may not be trying to be unsubmissive or arrogant, but the casual thoughts and words about or toward those in authority over you at home or at work or in the church, they follow you into worship of Christ. In other words, you need to be clean in worship. You need to be clean. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in an act of just amazing clarity and genius, bridged this Old Testament concept of cleanness with the new covenant by washing the feet of his disciples. In John 13. Jesus said to Peter. In John 13.10. The one who is bathed does not need to wash. Except for his feet. In other words if you're saved. You don't have to be completely washed over and over again. Except for his feet. You are clean he says. But your feet have to be washed. King David tells us what to do. He tells us how to have our feet washed as it were. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. By the way, to confess your sin does not mean to say, Lord, I have sinned. It is to enumerate exactly what you did. Our sustained fellowship with our God is partly accomplished by keeping a clean record. And what is the incredible benefit of our times of worship together? The benefit is that it provides the motivation and the impetus for us to become clean once again, especially when when we receive the Lord's table. 
1 Corinthians 11, we are instructed, do not come to the table in an unworthy manner. Don't come unclean. Come with a confessed heart. And this is, by the way, one extreme spiritual danger for those of you who are watching by live stream. This can feel like you're watching TV. And it may seem less necessary to be spiritually prepared and clean before the Lord. Can I give you a little suggestion? The old prayer acronym of ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, I would suggest that God would prefer cats. Confession first, then adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. Because let me tell you something. Adoration without confession is false flattery. God, let me tell you how great you are. When God's concern is, I don't care how great you think I am. You haven't confessed this sin. You haven't made things right between us. It's an attempt to worship God before you stop at the ash water of confession. Confess first and then always enjoy the immediate fellowship of your God. These are tremendous signs of a mature believer, disciplines and habits, routines of sacrificial worship and spiritual alertness, submissive contentment, systematic giving, sustained fellowship. This is big boy and big girl Christianity here. But it's a great life in the Lord because you know what you get from this? Here's the result. A life centered on the gathering of God's people, sacrificial worship, a life of intentionally becoming more like Christ through alertness and knowledge of the word, spiritual alertness, a life of being happy where you are and with what you have, submissive contentment, a life of giving to the work of the gospel, systematic giving, and a life of continual fellowship with God through humble confession, sustained fellowship. That's a glorious Christian life. That's a life worth living, and that's a life worth imitating. And so I hope you will pursue those spiritual disciplines. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God. This is a a, a large chunk of Scripture, and yet with this one overriding lesson to be disciplined before you, I pray, Lord, for all who are hearing this today, that we would be more disciplined, that we would be more like Christ, and that we would grow up into adult spirituality, adult Christianity, and lay aside some bad habits and begin to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.